If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. As far as I've been able to discern, there were no mushrooms in ancient Israel. This edible fungus is popular in the diet of many people around the world, but it was not even on the radar screen of the ancient Israelis. Too bad. If the Israelis had been familiar with them, I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus had used them as an illustration or analogy of sin, the way he did with leaven, yeast. Leaven, we discussed a couple of weeks ago, is a good illustration because put a little bit of leaven into a lump of dough and eventually this little bit spreads throughout the whole lump and affects the whole thing, the way sin does. But mushrooms also make for a very good illustration of sin for three reasons. First, mushrooms feed on death and destruction. They exist through death and destruction. How so? Green plants have chlorophyll and so they can make their own food from sunlight and water. You remember that from your high school science classes. Uh, And that's all we live on. All the food that everybody and everything eats on this planet ultimately comes from the food made by green plants, from sunlight and water. But mushrooms, like other fungus, have no chlorophyll. They can't make their own food. They eat dead organic matter, the remains of creatures that were once alive but are now dead. Mushrooms prosper where there's much death. And mushrooms are parasites. They attach themselves to living trees and they suck the nutrition out of them. Recently, we've discovered that this has such an effect on the tree that it causes serious damage and sometimes even kills the entire tree. And that's what sin is like. It is destructive. It hurts what is around it. It kills. It is not creative, but destructive. It is not helpful, but hurtful. It does not build up. It tears down. It is as Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It is a clear dichotomy. Jesus gives life, sin destroys. There's a second reason why mushrooms make a great illustration for sin. Mushrooms reproduce very quickly. If you find one mushroom on your lawn, you'd better remove it right away. Because if you don't, very soon your whole lawn will be covered with mushrooms. And again, sin is like that. If there is sin in your life or in your midst, and you do nothing about it but leave it there, it will grow and spread, as we see in 2 Timothy 2, 16-17. The third reason... And the one I want to draw your attention to particularly today is this. Mushrooms thrive in darkness. Did you ever notice that? 
Mushrooms do best in the dark. In the darkness, they thrive and they grow and they spread. Commercial mushroom producers grow their mushrooms in caves or in dark cellars because that's where they do best. Now, this is one of the most pervasive images we have in the Bible, that light represents good and darkness represents evil. At the very beginning of the Bible, we have the very beginning of God's creation, and the very beginning of God's creation is God saying, let there be light, and God calls it good, and he separates it from the darkness. And at the very end of salvation history, After Christ has returned and evil has been dealt with, there will be the new Jerusalem. And we read at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 23, there shall be no night there. And Revelation 22, 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And all through the Bible, between these starting and ending points, we see that light is the realm of the godly and darkness, the realm of the ungodly. Second Corinthians 6:14 to 15 says, "What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? God is light. First John 1:5, "God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is light. John 8:12 then Jesus spoke to them again saying I am the light of the world he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life when we come to God through the only possible way which is Jesus we pass from darkness to light Psalm 18:28 says the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness Matthew 4:16 says The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but you are light in the Lord now. Walk as children of light. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The ungodly, on the other hand, dwell in darkness. Psalm 82.5, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Proverbs 2.13-14, those who leave the paths of our brightness to walk in the ways of darkness, rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. And Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. If you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. Now, the Bible enjoins us to choose light instead of darkness. In Romans 13:12, Paul writes, Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. But the evil ones prefer darkness. That's the strange thing. They prefer darkness. 
Jesus said in John 3.19, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Why would people prefer darkness to light? Well, let us continue with Jesus' words there. John 3.19-21. to 21. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That's why people who love their sin prefer darkness. It hides their sin. People can't see what they are doing. Now, why do they care? Well, perhaps there is some remnant of conscience left in them. There's something in them that makes them know that what they're doing is wrong. And so they don't want people to know. They don't want to be embarrassed. They are ashamed in some sense of what they are doing. But as Romans 1 teaches us, the more people embrace sin, the more they engage in it, the more their consciences become seared and the more comfortable they become with their evil, and the more open they become with it. There's a second reason, and perhaps it's the main reason, why these people prefer to operate in the dark. It's so that they can continue doing their sin. They want their sin kept hidden so they can keep doing it. As Isaiah says in 29.15, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who sees us? And who knows us? Their sin is like mushrooms. In the dark, it grows, and it spreads, and it flourishes. So, what do you do if you find mushrooms in the church? What do you do when you find out that evil has been flourishing because it has been kept hidden? It's been kept in the darkness. How should the church react? Well, some people think we should do nothing. Oh, of course, we're obligated to express our disapproval, but beyond that, we should do nothing. Simply keep on loving and supporting and being there for the person doing the sin and hope that maybe someday he will repent. And why do they feel that way? Well, some people think we really have no right to judge others. Or that love means just waiting for repentance. Or that this may afford the best chance there is that they will in fact repent. The best chance to reach the offender. There are others who want to do nothing because they're primarily concerned with keeping up appearances. With saving face. Having people look at our church and think it's doing great. So they prefer to keep things quiet, under wraps, sweep things under the carpet. Whatever the motive, the approach leaves the sin shrouded in darkness where it will just continue to grow. So whatever the motive of those who wish to do nothing, it is not an option that the Bible gives us. The Bible does not allow us to remain inactive in the face of evil in the church. We are clearly and forcefully commanded by God to deal with sin in our midst. And this is what is called church discipline. 
The primary passages about church discipline are our readings this morning, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Consider again the passage from 1 Corinthians 5. Here, Paul is responding to a case of sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. The Corinthians have turned a blind eye to it. They have done nothing. Paul, however, has already judged him who has so done this deed. Again, showing that the church has a right to judge sin in her midst. He refuses to let the Corinthian church do nothing. Notice how forcefully he commands them to act in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, along with my spirit, by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. As if he senses they are reluctant, they don't want to act, and Paul makes it clear they have to. The action he commands is, for want of a better word, excommunication. In other words, the offender is to be expelled from the church, and the people are to associate with him no longer. That's what deliver such a one to Satan means. The early church understood that there was the church and there's the world. The church is under Christ and the world is under Satan. Being put out of the church means delivering him to Satan, into his lair. This was the primary form of church discipline and the strongest sanction the church had. It is what Jesus instructed. Jesus himself in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, our other reading. When he said, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. His Jewish hearers understood that he meant not to associate with them at all, which is how they treated heathens and tax collectors. This is what 1 Corinthians 5 says again in verse 11. I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And again in verse 13, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. It's also taught in Romans 16, 17 to 18. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Notice that here again Paul is very forceful. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a command, not an option. And again in verse 14, same chapter, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. Titus 3, 10 to 11, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So that's church discipline, folks, and it's a command, not an option. And there are three reasons why it's important to do it. One reason is that church discipline is the strongest tool we have to affect restoration of the offender. You see, church discipline is meant to be restorative, not punitive. We don't do it because we're mad and we want to punish the offender. The purpose is to send the strongest message we can to the offender that sin is unacceptable. 
with the hope that it will lead him to repent. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. And then continues to say that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And in 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul speaks of Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The purpose was to teach them the error of their ways. So it should be clear then that church discipline is to last only until there is repentance. Where there is repentance, there is no place for church discipline. And of course, church discipline is not to be done precipitously. We should not rush into it. The offender should be approached and warned and given plenty of chance to repent before church discipline is imposed. Jesus, again, in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, instructs that the offended party should, be, should first approach the offender privately to seek repentance and reconciliation. And if the offender responds positively, that should usually be the end of it. If the offender does not listen, then others should go too and seek to persuade that person to see the error of his ways and come back to what is right. And only after that, if he still will not repent, only after that does the church get involved. It's almost a last resort. Titus 3, 10 to 11 also speaks of rejecting the divisive man after admonitions, after warnings have first been given. This, of course, applies to personal moral offenses, not false teaching, which must be corrected immediately and publicly. So in church discipline, we are sending the offender the strongest message we can that sin is serious, that we can't live in sin and expect to be in God's good books. You know that a Christian who embraces persistent sin puts his very salvation into jeopardy. He can harden his heart to the point that he actually falls away from Christ. So how can it be loving not to act in the face of sin in our midst? Do we really want to be a party to them losing their eternal salvation? The second reason it is important to impose church discipline when there's sin in our midst, is that it sends a message to the rest of the church. A message that sin is not acceptable, that it is to be avoided. And that is important because there may be others in the church tempted to sin, perhaps tempted to commit the same sort of sin. And when sin is committed and the church does not respond strongly, it sends a message that we don't really think sin is such a big deal. And therefore, those people who are tempted may be emboldened to fall into sin themselves because we've told them it's not that important. And this is why church discipline must not only be done, but must be done publicly. Jesus in Matthew eighteen seventeen said, tell it to the church, that is all of us. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. And Ephesians 5.11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 
You see then that the church has no business helping people to keep their sin in darkness, where it will continue to grow and spread. Those who want to keep these things swept under the carpet are wrong. And the third reason that it is important to do church discipline is that not only has God commanded us to do it, he has warned us that if we don't do it, he will. You know the story in Acts 5, 1 to 11, in the days of the early church, Ananias and Sapphira struck down dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32, the specific sin in view there was eating and drinking the Lord's Supper unworthily. But the principle is applicable across the board. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many are dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So if we would judge ourselves, if we would practice church discipline properly, God wouldn't have to do that. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. And you here is plural, not singular. It's not talking about our individual bodies and being physically fit and, and not smoking or whatever. It is talking about the collective body of Christ, the church. That is the temple being referred to here. And it is sin that defiles. Look through Mark 7. If anyone defiles the church, God will destroy him. So this is serious business, folks. I would rather impose church discipline than wait for God to destroy the offender. So as much as we may not like the idea of church discipline, as much as we may shrink from it, as much of the church does today, if we believe the Bible, we have to do it. We have no other choice. The stakes are just too high not to do it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is clear what your word has said on this issue. Father, we know that sometimes it is difficult to do things like this. But we know that you are wiser than us. And sometimes when we think this is not good, we don't want to do it. Let us have the humility, Father, to follow your words, to follow your your commandments, the humility to admit that you know better than we do. Give us hearts, Lord, that do want to serve you, that have all wisdom and prudence to do rightly. Let us not do anything in a manner that is not right, Father. Help us to become that holy temple that you want us to be. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask these and pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.
you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word.